Hey, this is Salam Fatayed, host of Uniquely Milwaukee. For the next six weeks on the show, we're doing a podcast takeover with the Wisconsin LGBTQ History Project. Radio Milwaukee's Nate Imig and historian Michael Takash will bring you stories from our state's LGBTQ history. Let's take a listen to this week's episode of Be Seen. When you think of Wisconsin's LGBTQ history, what important milestones, events, or people come to mind? Well, if you're struggling to come up with even one name or person or event that defined Wisconsin's LGBTQ history, well, you're probably not alone. In fact, as somebody from the community myself, I probably couldn't have named one either before this podcast. And the good news is you're in the right place. This is Be Seen, a new six-part podcast series from Radio Milwaukee and the Wisconsin LGBTQ History Project. I'm Nate Imig, one of the voices you'll be hearing throughout the series. First, just want to say welcome and thank you. It's awesome you're here. This is going to be queer and fun, and we've got an incredible lineup for these first six episodes. We'll learn how Milwaukee's queer community carved out its own space with its own stars and its own queens at a time when it was literally illegal to be LGBTQ, when no protections were guaranteed. We'll go back to the 1880s to learn about the roots of female impersonation in Milwaukee and trace how the drag scene took root and came together during the AIDS epidemic. We'll also cover topics that gave us pause. We remember that generation that was ravaged by HIV and AIDS, and we meet a few of those brave local leaders who stepped up to support their community when the rest of the world turned its back. That's where we're going this season on Be Seen, but our first episode centers on Wisconsin's first LGBTQ uprising, what you might consider Wisconsin's Stonewall. Stonewall, if you didn't know, was probably the most famous or recognizable queer event in history. We won't get into every detail by the hour, but uh, give you a crash course. It happened in New York City in 1969 when a police raid descended on the packed Stonewall Inn, which was a popular gay bar in Greenwich Village. And remember, police raids like this were totally legal at the time. But the community fought back. They had had enough, and they defended their right to exist. Those events sparked six days of protest and clashes with police, and it's seen really as the beginning of the gay liberation movement in 1969. But what you might be surprised to know is Wisconsin had its own uprising almost 10 years before Stonewall. Ours was at a Milwaukee gay bar called The Black Knight, and it was led by a gender nonconforming, self-described queen named Josie Carter. When I came out, it was very, very hard. And then uh, a black male and gay, oh, it was total taboo. Josie is no longer with us. She died of cancer in 2014. But thankfully, she granted a pair of interviews in 2011. And we've got that audio from the archives department, University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee Libraries. And you know, in the day, um, the gay history, you know, you had to worry about your jobs. And so I really gave a shit. You know, because I did my own thing. You knew, you knew. If you don't, you know, time out. But a lot of people have very high-speed jobs. And then, you know, oh, you'll get fired right now. We'll share more of that later on in this episode, including one interview that has never been heard before anywhere else. The story starts, though, at The Black Knight, where historian and B-Scene co-host Michael Takash picks up the story. So The Black Knight was a former sailor bar at... 
St. Paul and Plankington in downtown Milwaukee in a space that really has not existed for nearly three generations. Um, The sailor bars were really places where men could go to find other men in an earlier time. But by the time of the Black Knight, this was an out-and-out gay bar, and it had been opened as such and financed as such to create a warm and welcoming place for people, whether they were gay, lesbian, or gender nonconforming queens like Josie and many of her friends. And that was the reason the Black Knight opened here in a space called the Plankington Strip. Um, it was a block of gay bars, really, that opened as early as 1949 and had been continuously operating on this block. Um, Across the street was Tony's Riviera. Down the street was the Fox Bar. And between the three, they were really the first gayborhood in Milwaukee history. We'll be talking a lot about nightlife in this podcast. Not to glorify drinking or substance abuse, but to be real. In a pre-internet, pre-marriage equality, pre-AIDS, pre-Stonewall world, gay and lesbian bars served an even more important role than today. They were some of the only places where queer people could be themselves and find their community to not feel shame or guilt and to instead feel acceptance and find belonging. So when we talk about drag queens and gay bars, just know that it was so much more significant than the performing itself. It was representation and rebellion against oppression. It was heroic. But Josie Carter, who this episode is really about, never saw herself as a hero. Author and historian Dr. Bryce Smith interviewed Josie for the Milwaukee Transgender Oral History Project back in 2011, and to our knowledge, is the only one to have recorded an audio interview with her. Showtime. All right. <laughs> okay. say, one of the most memorable experiences of my life. <laughs> it's kind of a, a new researcher <laughs> coming out of the gate, and I guess I didn't really know what to expect. You know, when I was reaching out to the, the possible interviewees, I'd said, well, you know, let's meet in, um, you know, wherever you feel most comfortable, you know, whether it be your office, your home, whatever. And I show up, and this young man answers the door. This young white man answers the door and then leads us down into the basement. <laughs> I'm wondering, okay. okay, what is going on? <laughs> I don't know who this is or what's happening here. So we go down the stairs into the basement and you know, it's this huge, complete, totally decked out basement bar. Oh, really? Wow. <laughs> like, this, place was, uh, this place was incredible. And there was Josie sitting at the bar, her legs crossed, just looking so beautiful and elegant. And I walk up to her. She, of course, you know, gives me her hand. <laughs> I, I shake it. And then she leans in to kiss my cheek um, and greets me that way. What did Josie look like in that moment? Can you describe how she looked when she was sitting at the bar. As those take us to that moment. How did she look? Well, sure. She had her hair done. Um, it was it was kind of done up, so it still looked. You know, it it looked like it came from another time. She had a beautiful, sparkly evening gown on. Um, makeup and she just oh she's just lovely just lovely so she was ready for her moment huh (laughs) (laughs) as they sat down for this interview you can hear it took a minute for Josie to get comfortable I'm not transgender I am gay yeah period yeah uh a feminine I'm I'm (laughs) but you gotta talk a little bit louder I think it's not picking up right 
Josie was 73 at the time of this conversation and was unusually soft-spoken at the beginning. As you'll hear later on, she opens up and you'll recognize that laugh of hers. You'll be hearing it for days to come. But to start, she was a little reserved. So talk a little bit louder. Just talk in your normal voice. Now I'm squealing. That other voice that you hear is Jamie Gaze. I was the first Miss Gay Milwaukee. She's another legendary Milwaukee performer who did drag alongside Josie for decades, like five decades. They still have a, a little thing about a borrowed dress from years ago. A uh, dress for 20 years. Yeah, it. Uh, we'll never give it back to. No, you. not twenty you years. Not give it back. Forty. Fifty. <laughs> just about. <laughs> Fuck you. No, really. <laughs> she got about that green dress, years. honey, and she loved it. You're never get it back. I know. <laughs> it's gone. Josie was born in Alabama in 1938, and moved to Milwaukee before she was a teenager. She says she always felt more feminine as a young child but didn't identify quite as transgender exactly. Those labels didn't exist back then. I wore pigtails till I was five years old in dresses. Oh, yeah. They'd say, here comes Miss Jo. <laughs> but I was always a feminine anyway that I know of, and I can feel my feelings. We opened the way up for a lot of the gay I'm telling you. community. Especially if you be Hispanic. Mm-hmm. This macho bullshit. Yeah. You had to be a, a big butchy man. Otherwise, you're nothing but a fag. Right. Some of these young kids don't know what the hell is going on. They don't know what they have. Yeah, they don't. They, you open the doors they for them. They expect it, you know, and it was not just handed to us like that. We, we had, fight had for to it. fight for it. Yeah. Big time. Josie was used to that feeling of feeling on edge. Used to Balancing her own identity, which she could feel deep within, and squaring that with what the world expected of her as a black individual assigned male at birth. Josie served in the Navy in her late teens, and there was no place for anything but model masculinity there, of course. But she got by, and she actually enjoyed the experience. I've traveled quite a bit. New Zealand, Japan, the Fiji Islands, Hawaii. I got to see the world. After being honorably discharged from the Navy, Josie returned home to Milwaukee and to her community in that early Milwaukee gayborhood. You had to watch everything you did. You know, even being gay on the street and the cops, you know, there were was some SOBs, you know, too. But we never let the deterrence. And that's where Josie's star would begin to rise. As a young 20-something, she would perform in drag in clothes that she and her lover made by hand. Has run off and I'm done you. That gray. Our drag thing then is nothing like we didn't buy nothing off the rack. We made our own clothes. Right. Drag clothes. Hairstyles. It's all a crazy game. So, was there a time when it was actually illegal to quote unquote cross dress? Yes, there was. And different cities and states would have you know, different regulations that they would enforce or what they would require in terms of how many pieces of clothing um, you would have to wear of the you know, gender 
aligning with uh, the sex you were assigned at birth. So like in Josie's case, you know, she might have been arrested for wearing so many pieces of women's clothing. Oh, my God. We had to put on three pieces of men's clothing in order to put drags on. We had to hide it wherever we did. Imagine a time when that kind of paranoia existed, when it was some cop's job to count the number of gendered items people were wearing on the streets or on the bus. If you weren't there, it seems silly, almost laughable. But for the people who lived it, rebelling against these forms of control, it wasn't laughable at all. I won't change. It was part of their identity, non-negotiable. I won't change by anybody. So now that we know Josie a little bit better, let's get into the story of that historical night in 1961, a night that would be the first of many important dominoes to fall in Wisconsin's LGBTQ history. Let's go back to Michael. So on August 5th, 1961, it was a very early evening. Um, it was a foggy, humid, kind of steamy night, and the bar was not really open for business yet. The doors were unlocked, and people were setting up the bar, and the bouncer and Josie were sitting at the bar um, having drinks when suddenly four sailors arrived at the bar wanting to be served. And it was clear that these sailors had already been overserved, and that maybe they were not there with the best interest of the bar or its patrons. The bouncer asked them to sign a register, which was very common at the time in gay bars, as this would give them identification of who had been there. And many times troublemakers wouldn't sign because they didn't want anyone to know they'd been there. They also refused to show ID. So at that point, the bouncer tried to remove them from the bar, saying they had to leave. At that point, all four of the sailors piled on the bouncer, who took the fight outside. That guy came in there, Ooh. looked like Dick the Bruiser, a big wrestler. And Josie, who was not even dressed for the night, in fact, she said she didn't even have her face on yet. Oh, it was a big struggle in the bar. So while the bouncer was getting pummeled by four different sailors, um, all under the age of 22... He attacked an old man, I'll never forget that. He's putting him out. Josie joined the fight and took one of the sailors out with a beer bottle. We got in the bar fight, and I went out there with a beer bottle in each hand. And the guy came over, oh, you fucking faggot. I said, come on. He walked out, popped him right here. So I took a beer bottle and I smashed it on his head. Oh, you're not going to hurt my husband. Wayne was a big guy. Well, after that, he got up. I let him have everything that was left in that bottle. I did. I cut him up bad. And as for the other sailors? They picked up their unconscious friend, um, and as they ran away, said that they would be back. They were coming back to clean up the Black Knight, and these queers better watch out. So Josie casually (laughs) went back into the bar, and... um, you know, the owner, Wally Wetham, said, you guys have to get out of here. You don't know what those people are going to do. They could come back here with friends. They could come back here with guns. Um, they're going to come back here and, and mess this place up, and you can't be here when that happens. So Josie just kind of sat down, and she said, I thought about it long and hard, and she said, no, I'm not going anywhere. And Wally said, well, I'm going to close down the bar and, you know, we're not, you you can stay here, but I'm not, I'm locking up and leaving. And she said, no, we're not going anywhere. So Josie was, as the bar was filling back up that, uh, that evening, customers were coming in and she was speaking to them as they were checking into the bar and kind of persuading them to stay and hang out. Right. 
Yeah. So, you know, a couple of hours have gone by. The sailors have gone back to Kane Place where they went to a tavern, according to police reports, um, dropped their friend off at a hospital and then went back to the Kane Place Tavern where the whole thing had begun. As it turned out that they had lost a drinking bet and on a truth or dare were sent to the Black Knight as kind of a humiliating dare. And um, not having proven that they had been there um, because they didn't have a receipt or a matchbook or anything to prove that they had followed up on their dare, they still had to save face. So they started rallying their friends to go back to the Black Knight and, and, as they said, clean it up. What they did not anticipate was that while they were doing that, Josie was doing the exact same thing with the population of the Black Knight. So as people were rolling in for the night and making their cocktails and make and socializing, she was making sure that they all knew what had happened to her bouncer boyfriend and her early in the night. And she had asked them if they thought that that was okay and how much more running and hiding they planned on doing in their lives and whether or not it was time to stop running and hiding and actually start fighting. And, you know, Wally, the owner, asked one last time at, you know, do you think we should shut down? Do you think we should leave? Those guys could still come back. And Josie said, we do not run from a fight. We do not run from anything. I'm not a runner. I, I mean, high heels or nothing. I'm sorry. I do not run. So that was the mood in the bar. When the door flew open and the one of the sailors came in saying, okay, you sick faggots, let's do this. About 10 guys came back looking for little old me and my husband. Big ass mothers. So, you know, because they got their buddy got screwed up in there, him and his other friend. They were upset. Yeah, they were totally upset. They said, Vegas, get your ass. Yes, right. What they didn't anticipate is that they were now outnumbered about 20 to 1 because there were about 80 people in the bar. Imagine the scene a rowdy group of sailors versus the entire Black Knight bar. What happens next? After the break. Did you know that the majority of 88.9's work is funded by members? That's why we can bring you such diverse programming through music, stories, and this podcast. Visit RadioMilwaukee.org and click the orange heart to become a member today. We're back at the Black Knight Brawl, Wisconsin's very first LGBTQ uprising. At this point in the story, one sailor has been taken to the hospital after a group of them attacked a bouncer, who was Josie's partner, and Josie fought them off with a beer bottle. Then three of them leave the bar, vowing to come back. When all those people come over, oh, we had fight. And then it was on. And she said everything was destroyed. Like the player piano in the bar was destroyed. The jukebox was destroyed. Every glass bottle, every glass um, in the entire property, like everything was destroyed. So it was a straight up brawl. I mean, it was it, it was, was ugly. It was a straight up bar brawl like Milwaukee had never seen. It made newspaper headlines. They sent newspaper reporters down with the police. And um, within a short period of time, the fight was over. The police rounded up the sailors and took them away. Um, and eventually the night kind of simmered down. But like what didn't happen it didn't go away. It stayed in the headlines for almost an entire week. Did anybody die in this sprawl? No. No. No, there were no casualties and no serious 
um, injuries aside from someone experienced what was called a brain concussion, but they were released from the hospital within two days. And it's the sailor that that got punched out by Josie or got beer bottled. Well, and that's it. I mean, there's so many layers here to sort through, but one is this male toxicity, right? I mean, the fact that these men felt that they had to go into a gay bar to prove that they were men only to be beaten up by what was essentially a trans woman of color and then to save face, come back and fight off against a mob of angry gay people who completely kicked their ass. <laughs> I mean, like there's a lesson here, right? <laughs> like there's a, 50, a 60 year old lesson here. But Milwaukee learned the lesson really quick because for the first time, gay bars were mentioned in the newspaper for the first time, people started seeing themselves reflected in the world, and they started realizing that they had a community, and now they knew where to find it. The Black Knight had an immediate triggering impact in many ways, and that is what makes it different about this event versus other pre-Stonewall LGBT uprisings in the United States. Number one, it was reported. It was documented. It was provable. Like it was, it was not something that people could say didn't happen because it was recorded in both newspapers and multiple news media. And it seems, I guess, like looking back, you know, violence is not the answer. <laughs> we don't want to glorify a violent act because it was, you know, you, you hate to see people get hurt and. But there's a but. There's a but. I mean, they were attacked first. They were defending their territory. You know what I mean? And this, the, these sailors were clearly, you know, according to the story, they were clearly uh, had bad intentions. They were there trying to start a fight. Right. And it was it was such a it was such a time bomb that went off. They just they pushed the wrong trigger at the wrong time, and it caused this time bomb to go off that like changed. LGBT history in Wisconsin forever. I mean, the Black Knight headlines sent chills through straight Milwaukee because most people didn't know a gay person, or if they did, they didn't know that was a gay person. And suddenly, their whole idea of what a gay person is as this like timid, docile, beat down, easily harassed, easily beaten up, all these terrible stereotypes are just totally shattered and like they're suddenly terrified of gay people. Gay people are dangerous. Like they're out to get you now. And this is an amazing turn of events for 1961 that that stereotype shifted so quickly. And then suddenly, you know, the Milwaukee Journal, Milwaukee Sentinel start running editorials about the homosexual getting bolder and how the homosexual is in our midst. And what are we going to do about the the, homosexual? What are we going to do about the homosexual problem? And, you know, homosexuals now want us to believe that their way of life is not just acceptable, but desirable. And it's just like, there's just this panic about like gay people being in Milwaukee after years of thinking they only existed in big cities. The Black Knight brawl was historic, not only because it opened up Milwaukee's eyes to the reality of a active, invisible queer community in 1961, but it also did it nearly a decade earlier than even New York City. So by the time that Stonewall existed, there were no less than three dozen gay bars had already opened and closed in Milwaukee at a time that people thought was the start of gay history. There was already a thriving gay history going on here. 
when you really look at this timeline, it's like the Black Knight happening so early triggered this community consciousness locally that was both positive and negative and really triggered a lot of change much earlier than a gay group saw in other states and communities. Which is why we're still talking about it today. You know, it seems like we're talking about a bar fight from 1961. Um, I'm sure there were other bar fights that happened in 61, right? Well, and that's the thing. I mean, sometimes when we present this to certain agencies, they say, oh, well, there have been a lot of bar fights in Milwaukee history. What makes this one special? Well, let me just tell you on the great canvas of LGBT history, there is no bar fight that has ever been this special. Josie wasn't looking for a fight that night, but she found one. And that's the reality. Wisconsin's LGBTQ history is complicated and at times violent, which makes her bravery that night even more memorable. As a black queen that could be arrested for just existing, she defended her lover, her territory, and her community. If people really in the heterosexual world got out there and really looked at it for what, what, oh, we. We're not perfect either. We're no different than anybody else. We're some idiots, assholes, whatever the thing is. But we have, we have a life too. We have kids. But I think in the gay community, we're a little bit more loving in a lot of ways. You know what I mean? Because who in their right mind would choose to be gay? <laughs> I'm serious. The way we're treated on this earth yeah. in the time. Who actually would be true say, well, I'm going to be gay. Okay. And to be treated and kicked around for no, for no reason because you are you. Just let me live my life and you live yours. And we're going to look beautifully. Is there anything that you would ask Josie now that, that maybe you didn't get a chance to when you met? Let's go back to Dr. Smith. I don't know that there's necessarily anything that I would ask Josie. I think I would just give her a big hug. Why? Just, I'm so grateful for her and for everything that she did. And yeah, just to, just to be able to hold her close because she was so remarkable too. There's just something about being around her even that was amazing. And just in the smallest of gestures to be able to say thanks and to show her just how much she means. Back in their original interview in 2011, Dr. Smith closed by asking a poignant question of Josie. Remember, Josie was in her 70s at this time and had presented as a woman for most of her and, life. Um, and for what would you like to be remembered? Being me. Mm-hmm. I don't bite my tongue about things in the gay life. Just being me out there, you know, and I've always tried to be supportive of the gay community and, and be friends with everybody. One more thought to close out that stuck out for me in this interview was one particularly about the city of Milwaukee, the city itself. I thought it was so fascinating that even while Josie dealt with all of this discrimination, this attack on everything that she cherished, she still had a fondness for Milwaukee. She stayed here even after a group of violent men tried to take away that sense of belonging. I love Milwaukee. Oh, I, I do too. I love Milwaukee. We got a lot of things going on here. Too. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like when they had that gay thing, marriage, I got a certificate for my lover that's passed, and I, like, uh, domestic partners and stuff like that, you know? 
Californian and stuff didn't have all that going on, you know. So here it's opening up little by little okay. before you know it, it's it's gonna get better, much much better than what it is now. Yeah. And I just love Milwaukee. I Chicago, you can keep it. Okay. Okay. We're ready to get rolling. In 2021, 60 years after the Black Knight, the Wisconsin LGBTQ History Project led a remembrance. You can hear our co-host, Michael Takash, welcoming the crowd. Welcome and thank you to our elected officials, esteemed guests and speakers for joining us at this, the 60th anniversary commemoration of the Black Knight incident. Various elected officials there on site, including Milwaukee Mayor Tom Barrett. We want to love and be loved. Every one of us. It's part of our human experience. And it is, it is sad that for all of time, people have objected to how other people want to love. And I think the mark of a, a true society moving forward is an understanding that we have to do a better job of accepting our fellow human beings, no matter who they are, no matter where they come from, no matter how they love. Repeat after me, rest in power, Jalzy Carter. The guest of honor that day, though, was El Halo, a prominent local transgender activist who spoke remembering Josie and the impact that Josie had on Milwaukee and on Elle. Thank you. You will not be forgotten. You were beautiful and bald, and most importantly, you were loved and got to know what radical love is. We carry that with us often for people that don't deserve our kindness. And as black community, we, we have to leave the fragile hi hierarchies of white cis heteronormativity at the door and realize that black queer and trans issues are black issues and that black queer and trans lives matters every day of the year. Rest in power again, Josie Carter, and thank you to the Wisconsin LGBTQ History Project. Thank you. Now, 61 years later, we remember the Black Knight that first domino that set up so many more to fall. We will explore that history throughout season one of Be Seen. And coming up next week, we're going to be talking about that, that period of time, that surprisingly recent period of time when it was illegal to be gay, when there were no protections at work or in public for LGBTQ people. But there was a business in 1976 that was among the very first Wisconsin gay bars that had open windows where people could see in and see a community thriving, existing, and being proud. It was called the M&M Club, and even though it closed 16 years ago, they've been hosting these reunions every year there since. We talked to one of the original co-owners, Bob Schmidt, who opened that business in 1976 at a time when it was literally illegal. That's coming up in our next episode of Be Seen, along with conversations from the 16th reunion of the M&M Club. Some great history coming up in episode two. We'll hope you join us. In the meantime, do rate and review the podcast. We'd love to hear your feedback. And most importantly, subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to right now. Hit the subscribe button and join us on this journey. We'll have a new episode every week on Be Seen as we celebrate Wisconsin's LGBTQ history from Radio Milwaukee and the Wisconsin LGBTQ History Project. We'll see you next Monday. I'm Nate Immig from Radio Milwaukee. Be Seen is hosted by me, Nate Imig, and Michael Takash. Our producer and audio engineer is Kenny Perez, with additional support from Salam Fatire. 
Marketing on 88.9 is led by Sarah Lahr. Our logo and branding by Aaron Bagata. Social media by Dan Reiner. And community engagement by Maddie Reardon. Dory Zori is 88.9's program director. And Danae Davis is 88.9's interim executive director. Thanks most of all to our members for making this and all content on Radio Milwaukee possible. This is Be Seen from Radio Milwaukee and the Wisconsin LGBTQ History Project. <laughs>